Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are going to be talking our way through the confession and absolution of sins, both in public worship and in private confession and absolution. And in order to guide us through this topic, we are going to start by looking at a relatively unknown treatise of Martin Luther's. And there is a a story behind how we happen to know this top secret document that so many, so few other people actually know about. Dad, are you intrigued? Yes, secret agent Sarah, tell us how you discovered this. (laughs) Well, my the secret sauce to my theological career, besides being Paul Hinlicky's daughter, is having the great good fortune of working with Theodor Dieter, an outstanding German Lutheran theologian who was my boss at the Institute for Ecumenical Research in Strasbourg, France. And uh, very, like 15 years ago now, he is the one who came up with the idea for what has now become a twice annual two-week course in Martin Luther's theology taught in Wittenberg itself. Theo and I have been teaching the November section uh, every year since 2009. Of course, a few of those years were virtually, not in person. Um, but anyway, as uh, we prepared for our very first year course of studies and we're saying, well, what what are the texts of Luther that absolutely have to be read by our group of uh, about two dozen Lutheran pastors from all over the world to make sure that they know this? He came to me with a request and I said, well, that is not in Luther's works and I have never heard of it before. And he said, oh, this is a problem. And uh, in his diffident way, made it very, very urgent. <laughs> so uh, we unearthed the Weimar Ausgabe version, which is in Latin. I am not very well versed in Latin, but he said, you can do it, or more like, because he's my boss, you will do it. And so I undertook, with the help of online dictionaries and then Teo's very careful assistance and revision, to translate for the sake of investigating the truth and comforting terrified consciences, i.e. 50 theses on the remission of sins from the year 1518. Now, the question, of course, is why did Theo know about this? And that's because Theo studied with Oswald Bayer, very well-known German Lutheran theologian as well. A number of his books have been translated into English. And in one of Bayer's books, uh, Promissio, that has indeed been translated into English, he argues that this is the first true Reformation text. Take that, 95 Theses. (laughs) Or the Tower experience, I suppose, too, right? This is the yeah. text of the breakthrough. Yeah. He says this this is the really the first time that Luther begins to do distinctively Lutheran theology. And the reason why, he says, as we will see as we go through this, is because this is the first place we can see Luther plainly saying that what effects the forgiveness of sins is neither the power of the priest nor also the true contrition of the penitents. And of course, Dad, you will know in the 95 Theses, Luther is very concerned with what authentic repentance is like. He dislikes likes indulgences because he thinks that they foment and encourage false or performative repentance rather than the real thing. But in this text, as we will see, for Luther, the source of forgiveness is neither priest nor penitent. It is the word of Christ alone, which is absolutely reliable and does what it says. And I'm sure that will sound to you very familiar from the themes that we know and love in Luther's theology. Well, thank you for that introduction to this obscure text, which you're absolutely right that uh, the, the notable um, German Lutheran theologian Oswald Bayer, Bayer rather, um, promoted as the um, text, not the psychological experience, but the text in which Luther articulates his genuine breakthrough. And what is is it a breakthrough to? It's a breakthrough to the real presence of Christ as an active agent who speaks in the remission of sins. That's what it's a breakthrough to. What is it a breakthrough from? And you could read the Heidelberg Disputation as well and its theology of the cross as still a kind of exemplarist um, um, doctrine in which Christ shows us how genuinely uh, to suffer for our sins, how genuinely to be contrite, and so forth, and therefore provides us with the example so that the genuine Christian, 
is an active, actively imitating um, Christ. You, I don't, I don't say you can must read the Heidelberg Disputations theology of the cross that way, but you can. And here it becomes much more clear that it is the crucified but risen Christ who can and will be truly present through the word of remission uh, to effect the salvation he has won for us. Yeah, and I think we would assume, just knowing the way intellectual development works, that Luther may have made this breakthrough and then not quite realized it. <laughs> the fact that this did not become a major and influential text in Luther interpretation. As far as we know, it was something part of their usual Friday disputations. There's no respondent. There's no student involved. It's not a doctoral defense or anything like that. It might be the first time Luther got it written down, but only slowly it started to work its way fully into his theology and find fuller expression as he went. Went along. Yeah, very good. Um, right. I, I just I just want to note a couple of things, though. Um, what Luther can take for granted, and what we today cannot take for granted, uh, <laughs> in this in this affirmation of the real presence of the crucified and risen Christ, is uh, I think several things. Uh, why is it necessary? Uh, uh, to be truly present, and on what grounds is it possible to say that a first-century Palestinian Jew named Jesus of Nazareth is the one who was present? Why would that be necessary? What, 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 what would justify it, or what, what would ground such an assertion? Luther, I think, takes for granted the established dogma of Christendom, that Christ is true man and true God, and therefore he can and will be present if he wants to be. And I don't, I don't think it's quite so easy for us today. So we would have to justify this notion of a really present Christ. Though I think we have to acknowledge that it, it's certainly extremely important for Luther. Um, it, elsewhere in this early period, he regularly says, uh, we have a really present and active Christ, not the vicar of an absent one, not the vicar. The ministry of the church is not a vicar of an absent Christ, but the instrument of a present and active one. Right. So I think for us now, using this text going forward, we are simply going to assume that we and you out there listening all uh, believe and uh, also assume that the crucified, risen, and exalted Christ is the source of the forgiveness of sins. So the question then here is, how does that exalted Christ's forgiveness of sins actually come to us ordinary schlubs here on the earth and in the practices of the church? What is the right pastoral ministry of applying this forgiveness of sins? So we're not going to um, excuse or defend Christ for doing it. We're just going to assume that he does. Okay. You sound doubtful about that, but I think I think doing that requires a whole another set well, of episodes. I, I th you. No, no. What I, I what I think is that very soon we're going to do a podcast on the doctrine of atonement, and I think in that uh, episode we'll have to be a answering some of these questions of warrant and justification for the claim that Christ is really present and truly active to forgive sin. All right. Well, next time on the show, that is, in fact, what we're doing. Maybe we did these a little out of order. But all right, listeners, consider that the cliffhanger that you've been waiting for for the next episode. <laughs> okay, well, let's work our way through this text. Um, I'm going to be working through the revised version that will be eventually published in a new volume of Luther's works that Concordia is putting out, I think, maybe in 2024. It's not out yet, as far as I can tell. Um, but in the show notes, I will link to the earlier translation that I did and published in Lutheran Forum back when I was the editor. Okay, so we can, as I said, these are 50 theses on the remission of sins, and they break down kind of structurally. And the first seven theses are basically comparing the remission of guilt and the remission of punishment. And again, this will be a familiar theme from the 95 theses, which is primarily concerned with the remission of punishments in purgatory, or at least that's a major theme of it here. But now in this set of theses, Luther's opening gambit is... Of the two kinds of ecclesiastical remission, namely the remission of punishment and the remission of guilt, the remission of guilt is by far the more excellent 
And Thesis 2 says, that's because the remission of guilt makes the heart to be at rest and takes away the greatest of all punishments, namely consciousness of sin. And then in the rest of this section, he basically develops the idea that, well, having your punishment for your sins remitted isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, It can exacerbate your bad conscience or it might make you presumptuous, which Luther says is even worse. Furthermore, remission of guilt is what reconciles you to God that has eternal consequences, whereas punishment, again, for sins in the sense of the the penance or contrition, acts of contrition you have to do after penance, they reconcile you to the church, but they are not so weighty and do not affect you so deeply. And he concludes by saying, without remission of punishment, a person can still be saved. Hence, you can go to purgatory for a long time, but if you're in purgatory, you know you will go to heaven eventually. However, in no case can you go to heaven, can you be saved without remission of guilt. You know, that uh, distinction will probably be brand new to the ears and thoughts of a lot of modern people, but it should be, for Christians, as familiar as the story of the two thieves on the cross with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, in which the one uh, thief's uh, confession leads um, Jesus uh, to a a de facto statement of forgiveness and a promise of heaven, right? Um, But it does not release him from uh, the temporal punishment that he's enduring. He is not, you know, delivered from the the cross on which he hangs. Um, So there's clearly a distinction to be made between remission of guilt, which would require some place for the sin of the guilty one to go to, if it's not to be some kind of transcendental fiction or some kind of magic disappearing act. What happens to the sins that are remitted? And what we'll see, of course, is that this points to Christ being the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Christ being the sin-bearer, as opposed to a kind of theology of the atonement in which Christ is primarily a substitute, a scapegoat who takes the rap. Uh, Jesus took the rap for me, therefore I get off scot-free. That, that, that of course, um, uh, undermines the story of the two thieves on the cross that I just, that I just alluded mm. to, right? Yeah, I think you can e- see it near at hand in, in a psychological sense um, with raising children. You know, if when children behave badly quite often and, you know, parents have to figure out how to discipline them. And if they discipline them or treat them as if their misdeeds are so severe that it it undermines their humanity, their place in the family, their worthiness, their belovedness um, that, uh, you know, creates despair in the children and often doubles down, makes them double, double down on their bad behavior because there's just no way out. On the other hand, you can also have a kind of parenting that says, well, it's okay, we forgive you, you didn't mean it, you know, and never takes the child seriously as a moral agent, never imposes any consequences or punishments on the child, which then teaches a child, oh, I can do whatever I want, and never develops the moral sense of respect and concern for others or the real effects of their behavior in the world. And so having an entirely punishment-free child rearing is is just as dangerous as one that is uh, so horrified and comes down like a hammer on every little thing. Um, so I, I think this this actually makes a lot of intuitive sense of how human beings develop actually uh, morally and socially. Granted, yes, granted. Okay, so that's the first part. What is the next section of the document about so then in Thesis 8, this is probably where, um, or, or eight, 8 and 9, this is where Luther makes the breakthrough uh, in Bayer's sense. He writes, Remission of guilt is based neither on the contrition of sinners, nor on the office or authority of priests. 9. It is based rather on faith, which is directed toward the word of Christ, who says, whatever you loose, uh, allusion to Matthew 16, verse 19. 
And so, as I mentioned earlier, this is the real break from either, you know, from basically from all human authority having the last word on sins, but rather it is because Christ, who is always reliable, says that sins are forgiven or loosed. That is why they, in fact, are loosed. But also here you can see here Luther is immediately linking it with faith. And this is, is going to be the burden of the rest of this document is, tr is trying to sort out how can he be saying it's the word of Christ that does it, but then he keeps referring again and again back to faith. Uh, you see, uh, you heard here in this thesis, Luther says it's based on faith, which is directed toward the word of Christ. So here we also see Luther beginning to more clearly state that faith is not saving because of what it is in itself, but because of what it clasps or is oriented towards. Very good. But it still kind of raises a question, doesn't it, Sarah? If the point is that neither the human work of the priest nor the contrition of the penitent is what causes or affects remission of sin. Isn't it a danger that faith could be understood here as a, a, the good work that merits forgiveness, that it's still a human work, that Luther has not escaped the circle of uncertainty, which is human subjectivity? Yes, in fact, I think there is a way of reading this that could give rise and probably in some sense did give rise to a whole stream of Protestantism, which is very much concerned with faith as the ultimate human work. And therefore, the uh, the best reason to be a Protestant and not a Catholic is all you have to do is believe. You don't have to do any of that other hard stuff, right? <laughs> that... Uh, yeah, right. So you, you actually can see the problem immediately afterwards. So in, in this, the section of Theses 8 through 12, Luther is saying Christ is the active agent. But then in the in the next section, uh, 13 through 22, where he's trying to sort out, well, where uh, let's nail down the source of certainty and the absolution of Christ. So in Theses 14 and 15, he says things that are could certainly cause trouble. <laughs> he writes, No matter how uncertain the priest and the sinner may be about the contrition, the absolution is valid if the sinner believes that he is absolved. Therefore, it is certain the sins are remitted if you believe that they are remitted because the promise of Christ the Savior is certain. There is a sentence that with not properly understood will cause so much trouble. Let me say this last bit again. The sins are remitted if you believe that they are remitted, which seems very much centered on the human subjectivity or action, comma, because the promise of Christ the Savior is certain. So, Dad, how are you going to square that circle? Yeah, well, I think it's an important circle to square, and it will come back as we talk about the practical implications of uh, the validity of a general absolution. Um, I think the way you square the circle, of course, is to, and Luther does say this later on in his career, um, though I'm pressed at the moment to remember exactly where, that if you if you doubt your own forgiveness, it's not just... Um, your own problem of, of doubting and being uncertain. What you are doing is dishonoring Christ. What you are doing is is uh, taking away his glory as the savior of sinners, who out of at great cost and out of great mercy did the deed that was necessary to seek and find you. And so faith then for Luther is not self-referential. It's always um, has this uh, um, reflexivity, which in any way you turn, it points back to Christ. So that if you doubt your own forgiveness, it's not really you that's um, the problem uh, of whether or not you have sufficient faith. The problem is that you are um, taking away the glory of Christ the Savior. And that is a horrible sin. And anyone who understands that would shudder at it. And in shuddering at it, they would say, if you say so, Lord Jesus, who am I to doubt you? Yeah, actually, you already see that in the Freedom of a Christian, which is in 1520, just two years later. He says that, in fact, um, believing and accepting the forgiveness of sins is keeping the first commandment because it is rendering to God what is God's and saying, you are the one who forgives sins and you have declared me forgiven. 
So, uh, but you, he already is beginning to, to get this here. And I think the, the key thing for us in interpreting this is that Luther understands specifically the nature of a promise and faith as the reception of the promise. So the reason he says, and what can be, again, easily misunderstood, if you believe it, what he means is Christ has made the promise. The promise is absolutely certain and unwavering. The issue is whether the promise has been accepted by you, has made it to you. Uh, if there is a, the promise is successful in cracking the shell of guilt that surrounds and drowns you in order for you to accept it. So in a sense, he can you, you, maybe we would extrapolate and say, the promise is, is good anyway, but the promise isn't doing you any good if you don't believe the promise that's being offered. It would help here to paraphrase belief or faith as trust, because mm, that, right. the kind of breakthrough that we're talking about is one in which the guilty sinner can break through to entrusting his or her real existing self uh, to someone so gratuitously gracious. Yes. And again, given uh, human possibilities, you can see why people might not trust that such infinite graciousness is a real thing rather than a, a delightful fiction, but only a fiction. And it would also help something that Luther will say clearly later in his theology is that this kind of newborn trust in the goodness and power of the risen Jesus to say, I forgive you through the minister, uh, is the gift and work of the Holy Spirit, who bears witness to our spirits that we are indeed the children of God. And here Luther is still kind of relying, I think, overly much, uh, like in some ways like Oswald Bayer, um, though he's more sophisticated than I'm suggesting on this question, um, too much of a reliance on a, a kind of a magic of the performative word, as I say somewhat polemically, and that no matter how, how good the performance of the word is, the word is quickened by the work of the Holy Spirit, which is not reducible to any kind of performance, recitation, or histrionic preaching of forgiveness. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, well, we'll get in just a moment now to what, in fact, the pastoral ministry can and cannot do in this regard. But just to wrap up this this section on, on promise and faith, um, Luther, I'm going to just read Theses 17, 20, and 21, where he addresses this. So he writes, whoever doubts that his absolution is pleasing to God doubts at the same time that Christ was truthful in saying, whatever you lose, Matthew 16. Right. Yet, Yes, indeed, to want to place the confidence of one's conscience in contrition means to make God into a liar and oneself into the truthful one. Such people <laughs> rely in the most pernicious way, not on the mercy and word of Christ, but rather on their own works and powers. I can't help but suspect there's a little bit of autobiography going on here, but but you oh, do yeah. see the point. And this this is, I think, just a characteristic of people who are sort of naturally religious by nature and who have sensitive consciences is in a sense, you want it to be how deeply you feel your wrongdoing. That is what puts you right with God. And Luther is taking even that away from the sensitive conscience. No, 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 you don't even get that. All you get is the word of God that declares absolution or forgiveness to you. Yeah, that's exactly why I have suggested a number of times that Luther leaves behind the early theology of the cross because he's worried that it gives license to this kind of um, um, uh, cross-mysticism in which the more I hate myself, the more I despise myself, the more contempt I have for myself, the closer I get to God. You know, and Luther yeah. re recognizes that that's a, that's a dead end, uh, literally a, a deathly end. Yeah. Yeah, you can also see it in a, a kind of victim valorization detached from the the whole gospel story, uh, you know, which has uh, secularized and taken on its own life in American culture. You know, there's there's that uh, a core of truth in it, but again, not in relationship to all the other truths of the gospel. It becomes quite, you know, well, a kind of death cult in its own way. We don't need to go off on that track. Okay, so now in the next set of theses, Luther is going to talk about, well, then, what is the priestly ministry for? 
So he says in Thesis 23, the priests are not the originators of forgiveness, but rather those who administer the word for faith in forgiveness. And so he basically says that, you know, it's the it's God's power that's doing it. And in language that I, I can't help but almost like instantly translate into Augsburg confession language, but saying the, the job of the church is to purely preach the gospel and rightly administer the sacraments um, because people, uh, human beings know things through what comes from outside themselves and is addressed to them. And that's what the ministry is doing. So Luther goes on to say that the priest um, has enough clear signs of contrition when he senses that the sinner requests absolution and has faith in it. And in fact, Luther says in Thesis 26, it must be ascertained much more from the sinner whether he believes that he is absolved than whether he worthily repents. So Luther is already saying here a shift in the focus of the ministry, not towards the exhaustiveness or intensity of confession of sin, but the trust in the word of absolution that is coming. And in fact, Luther warns against priests probing too deeply into the contrition because that is going to psychologically focus the sinner's mind on the quality and extent of his contrition, not on the trustworthiness of Christ's word of forgiveness. Yeah, that's really good. You would also have to say here that the the thesis that you just read could once again seem to be directing attention back to the interior state of the penitent. Do you really have faith or don't you have faith in your own absolution? But when you understand that what's being encouraged here for pastoral care is the cultivation of trust. It's the encouragement, the literally giving one, the penitent, the courage to trust. Um, and I think that that would be the uh, the evangelical construal of the confessor's ministry, not to dis, not to discourage by reminding one of sins of which they are conscious or unconscious, but rather uh, encouraging that n- newborn trust in the goodness of Christ uh, who forgives. Yeah, very good. And then uh, you will be very happy to know that following up on that thought, Luther does actually mention the Holy Spirit. So uh, it it didn't take him a few more years to catch up to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's right here. So in um, Theses 30 and 31, Luther writes, Just as the priest actually teaches, baptizes, and communes, and yet these are the works of the internally operating spirit alone, So also he, the priest, actually forgives sins and absolves guilts, and yet this is the work of the internally operating spirit alone. So Luther here, this is going to be a constant theme of his theology, which is that the pastor, the priest, is not the baptizer. God is the baptizer. The priest simply lends voice and hands for God to do the work. And it is not the the priest or pastor who causes Christ to be present, but it is the Holy Spirit and um, the the, the gift self-giving of Christ himself that makes his body and blood to be present there. And so in the same way, Luther says this is what's happening in the forgiveness of sins. Yes, the, the priest, the pastor, is the one who talks the person through it, and yet this is really the work of the Holy Spirit within the person who is absolving. And again, for Luther, it comes back to because the word of Christ is true and reliable. So he um, concludes this section, Thesis 33, for nothing justifies except faith in Christ alone, for which the administering word through the priest is necessary. So again, how will you even know to trust in Christ? That's what the pastoral ministry is for. And yet the purpose of the the ministry is to elicit um, the saving power of faith, which is the Spirit's gift. Very good. I'm curious about the the language you translated as internally operating. Do you know offhand what the Latin was that you translated there? No, I don't have the Latin here, but it's it's cognates. Yeah, he does. He does not specify exactly what he he means by this, but um, I I think what it means is that um, it is not. Um, it, uh, the, I think what he's implying is that the spirit makes use of the pastoral ministry, not the pastoral ministry makes use of the spirit. Yeah, the, there is a um, a distinction between the external and internal works of the spirit, the uh, along these lines in, in later Lutheran theology. But let's go on then. 
Okay. Well, from there, Luther then goes on. I don't, I don't think we'll, we need to cover it here. He talks about restricted and hypothetical cases, basically imagining um, whether you know, in, in the medieval church, there could be a time where the, the Pope would say, only I have the right to absolve the sinner, like, you know, when he would put the interdict on King Henry the Fourth or whatever, who had to walk on his bare feet to Canossa to get his absolution from the Pope, and so I, maybe something like that is what Luther has in mind. If 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 some higher authority reserves the right to absolve sins, but then an ordinary village priest does it anyway, are sins forgiven? And Luther says yes, because the word of Christ is above all human or ecclesiastical claims. And then Luther also imagines, well, what if somebody deliberately abuses this and isn't really sorry for their sins, but still truly believes that their sin is forgiven in the absolution, are they absolved? And Luther says again, yes, because um, Christ's word is real. However, Luther doubts that you can really truly believe in the absolution of sins if you don't also believe in your own sinfulness. So he takes it, uh, but it's it's a, a thought experiment to see whether or not it works. That's right. It's an analytical truth. It's an analytical truth. If I believe in my absolution, I certainly therewith also believe in my sinfulness and need for absolution, right? So it's, 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 lo- it's logically impossible genuinely to believe that I'm forgiven if I don't also believe that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. Right, right. So that's why it's it. We don't need to go deeply into it. Uh, then he also has a few theses contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant. It's kind of tired Christian polemic against Jewish sacraments, so called. Uh, he doesn't go very deep, and he does better later in his career. So we'll just set that aside. Um, and then finally, the the theses conclude with basically, as we've heard from Luther before, the impossibility of confessing all of your sins. Um, nobody knows how often they sin, even mortal. Sins it's hard to really know. And so the final thesis is despairing over other sins. A person must throw himself with trust into the abyss of the mercy of God who promises mercy faithfully. And then he quotes from Romans 1 and 3, the righteous will not live from the works of the law and also not from the law, but from faith. You know, I think that last point about enumerating sins is really kind of important and not in the easy conscience way that uh, so much in uh, Protestant history has made it. That unlike the Catholics, I don't have to actually seriously examine myself and think about my sins. It's just kind of a general, and here's my real problem with general absolution, you know, that it's just kind of, well, whatever I sinned against you, Lord, you'll forgive it, right? And that's the end of the matter. Let's get on with things. Right. Um, right. I think the more the deeper way to look at this is to understand that sinfulness is not does not consist solely in deeds committed against visible deeds manifest to human understanding, eyes and thought um, of violations of a checklist like the Ten Commandments. Uh, but sinfulness consists in our participation in a whole system of things which defies our Maker and Redeemer and implicates us in everything that we do. That, that's why in the liturgy of the Lutheran Book of Worship, the general confession begins. We confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. Now, uh, you know, I have had some Protestant friends, very good people, good theologians, visit our Lutheran church and take deep offense at that statement. We are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves, as if it were a renunciation of all that Christ has done for us, as if it were denial of the Holy Spirit who has led us out of darkness into light, and to which I say, you know, in response uh, of that, do you have you overcome the need of Christ as Savior? Have you overcome the need of the Holy Spirit as Sanctifier? Are you already in heaven? Have you already arrived? Are you are not are you not yet in the daily battle against sin, death, and the power of the devil? Um, and if you are, uh, then you pray as the Lord taught us: Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is our reality in this interim between Easter morning 
and the parousia of Christ. This is the battle in which we are daily engaged. And so you don't, um, if you don't see that sinfulness is not uh, something as shallow as a checklist of transgressions, but is your complicity in a whole system of things that defies our Creator and Redeemer, you don't really know what it means to be a sinner. Um, and that is why it is so necessary, I think, liturgically, to begin every service with this stark confession. We confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. So I certainly agree with us being swamped in sin of a level that we cannot in any way extract or absolve ourselves for our behavior. But perhaps this is, again, a generational difference. To me, the language of, of a structural and systemic sin is so familiar that it has turned into an excuse for not being accountable for our personal and enumerable sins. I, I, that, I, I mean, like E-N, <laughs> enumerating our sins. And the exercise of actually going through the Ten Commandments and being confronted with specifically not how I live in a world where um, young women are exploited and trafficked and turned into pornographic objects of the vicious male gaze, but how I specifically have broken the Sixth Commandment against adultery, or that I can regularly decry the consumerism that has overwhelmed the Western world and its capitalist nature, but then never actually have to reckon with my own covetousness. So, um, I mean, I, I think this is probably always a matter of discernment in any particular cultural setting, whether we are so fixated on personal sins that we fail to see that there are powers that are way beyond us to ever get ourselves out of. But on the flip side, they can also be a way of being so, you know, kind of conveniently despondent about systemic sin. And I'm just such a small part of it. I'm not the one making the world worse, that we can get away with excusing things that we very much have power over and could actually choose not to do uh, not not to do evil or at least wickedness, and yet we do it anyway. Well roared, young lioness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say that you make a valid point, but I tend to think, and this might be a generational difference, um, and as recently as my last pastoral experience um, in, in the Bible Belt here in southwest Virginia, dealing with people whose consciences have been crippled by this nitpicking, guilt-tripping guilt uh, checklist idea of sins uh, and all the damage that it's done to them um, and uh, how little they would have any concept of systemic sin or anything like that. Um, so I think, I think you're right that you can use the doctrine of original sin to evade confession of actual sins. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. But I also think you can't really even treat actual sins appropriately without recognizing their embeddedness in the web of sinfulness in which we, into which we are born. Hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I, again, this is why I always say this is why we have pastors, because we need living people on the ground in specific cultures and personal situations to render a judgment call as best as best we can. I mean, because we all we can do here is talk about about principles and offer what insight we have. But like actual right. pastors or, you know, dear Christian friends, you are the ones who actually have a chance of seeing what's going on with a person in their in their own sin crisis. You're the one who has to help them sort it out and make the call. All right. So then this comes to... Yeah. And I was just going to say, and then theological discussions like this equip you to do that discernment. They give you some uh, principles in which to, to guide your discernment, right? That's, that's right. exactly the point. Yeah. Okay, so all of this has been a preamble to the real question that I wanted to get to, Dad. And you and I have had, had a little bit of a private conversation beforehand, but we'll do we'll do most of the heavy lifting here. So, and, and here's here's the autobiographical part. So, I first worked on this text in 2009 for our first Wittenberg seminar, and I've taught it pretty much every year ever since. But only five and a half years ago, I started doing congregational ministry again, which meant that I was in charge of the liturgy. 
which meant that I had to make some decisions about what our general confession and absolution would be at the beginning of the service. And also, I was back in the position of uh, hearing, potentially hearing private confessions and offering that kind of absolution. And so the effect of my of this text on me has been to think, well, if Christ's word is absolutely true, and me as pastor speaking the word, I'm only offering my voice, his word is true. And what Christ said is, says is, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. I suddenly thought, what the heck am I doing loosing things I don't know anything about in a general absolution? So I, you know, like you, I, well, you didn't grow up with the LBW. I grew up with the LBW and I've always very much liked the confession that starts with, we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. But I began to have some real qualms about the dec- the absolution, which says, as a called and ordained minister of the church of Christ and by his authority, I therefore declare to you the entire forgiveness of all your sins in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. I always thought that was awesome. And because I went to Princeton seminary, which is reformed, I always thought their so-called absolutions were mealy-mouthed and inadequate because it was sort of a general assurance of pardon. Um, but not because of reformed reasons, lest anyone think that, but because of Luther and being in <laughs> a different kind of congregational context and um, suddenly realizing that there were a lot of sins out there potentially, uh, some of which I may have known, some of which I may not have known about, I really started to wonder, what are we doing in a general absolution to anyone who happens to show up in church? Not everyone is baptized. Not everyone is a believer. If Christ's word is really true, should I be loosing all these sins. And so uh, I'll, I, I will follow up with their further thoughts I had, but I'll let you make your initial reaction to that kind of crisis of pastoral conscience I had. Well, it's of course, it's good to have a crisis of conscience and to examine your practice and to think deeply about what you're saying and what you're doing. So no objections there. In fact, I wish more pastors would do exactly that. But let me just read back to you several of Luther's theses 42 and 43. The sacraments of the new law are not in this way efficacious signs of grace, such that it is sufficient for their reception not to set up a hindrance. Now that is a statement against uh, medieval practice that Luther was objecting to, the ex opere operato, and in which... The, um, the penitents uh, could be ignorant um, uh, of, of their own sin and need of forgiveness as long as they did not set up some kind of obstacle to the efficacious sign. Uh, so he's criticizing the medieval practice that he does not agree with, that what is sufficient is not to set up a hindrance to the mechanical operation of the sacrament. That's the gist of 42. 43. Yes, whoever comes to any of the sacraments without faith comes to them as a hypocrite and through this into judgment. So I, that, and that's a very familiar thought of Luther's and it echoes what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about unworthy reception of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that you bring judgment upon yourself, that it's not a neutral thing. Um, So my initial response to what you're saying is that you cannot possibly know in general or in private confession the heart of the penitent or the sincerity of the faith. You can't discern that. You can't know that with any certainty. You can only take them in good faith at their word. And because that's true, there's really no difference between the ego te absolvo of private confession as you lay your hands on the penitent and say, I forgive you of your sins, punct, right, in the name of Christ and so forth. There's no difference between that and saying it out loud in the general gathering of the community. Moreover... Oh, no, 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 no! There, you thought it would be more fun if we argued. So there, I'm arguing already. But you finish your thought. <laughs> I, I almost lost my thought there after that outbreak. <laughs> Let's see. I was saying that there's no difference 
between saying, I absolve you to the penitent in private confession and announcing it to the assembly in the context of a Christian worship service. Why? Because in either case, the pastor has to take the people individually and privately or corporately and publicly as baptized Christians there in good faith who have sincerely recited the words of confession. And that's all you can see into. You can't see any further than that. Okay, no. So I think I, I, um, I understand what you're saying, and I just think it's wrong. So here's why. <laughs> First of all, um, maybe this is, again, a difference of location. Uh, you have generally been a pastor in Christendom contexts, and I am now a pastor in a very much not Christendom context where people regularly come as tourists or observers, people who are not believers, not convinced, um, have a whole variety of reasons for coming. But of course, I also have Christians in all sorts of various states of um, belief or unbelief or reconciliation to the Lord or not. Again, I do not know what's always going on. Um, uh, of course, I don't really know what's going on in anyone's heart. But the idea that everybody who comes to a worship service is sincere, and when they say the words of the general confession, actually um, mean it, even even to the, whatever extent a human being can be conscious and penitent. I don't, I, I no longer take that for granted at all. And furthermore, I think just by saying that there's no difference between a public generalized confession and a, a private confession is exactly why Protestants, for all intents and purposes, have lost the practice of private confession, which you and I both bemoan and think it would be better if we had it. If somebody goes to the actual trouble of going to a pastor and saying, I would like to confess in private my actual sins that I am aware of and that afflict my conscience because I need to hear a word of forgiveness beyond what I hear in the general worship, I think that is a categorically different sort of situation. And so just to say, well, they're the same in either case and the words are the same in either case, I think both disincentivizes um, or plays down the gift that can be given in private confession and simply doesn't acknowledge the very human and social and personal difference between just going to the, you know, the the Sunday service that some, you know, the pastor or whoever designed for you and you just say the words because everyone is saying the words versus coming with a heavy heart asking for an absolution that you you really need to hear personally to yourself with, with the laying on of hands and the the, the the very personal word of I forgive you all your sins. I just don't I don't think they're comparable. Now, Sarah, I think we're disagree. I, I would re respond to that by saying I think we're disagreeing on different levels. I think that the validity of the absolution, the validity, the theological validity, the divine action, the divine action, is there in both the general and in the private confession, individual confession. Uh, I don't think there's any question of validity at all. It can't be a question of validity. If it is, you're doubting exactly what you don't want doubted, the authority and word of Christ. Uh, so the validity right, is right. the same. The, the validity is the same. What you're arguing here for is something I can hardly disagree with. Of course, if someone's burdened and troubled by sins and needs pastoral care, counseling, confession, and absolution, hallelujah, you know, that's just great. And um, you could say, I think quite validly, uh, the divine forgiveness of your sins is already there in the corporate worship service and with confession and absolution. But if you need, come to private confession. It's a matter of pastoral care and discernment. So I don't think it's a question of validity at all. What is a question is how does this valid absolution get effectively communicated? And therefore, you cannot argue in such a way that it calls into question the validity of the general absolution. No, in fact, it is because I believe in the validity of the general absolution that I'm much more hesitant to pronounce it. Because I wonder uh, uh, now if it is if it is reckless to pronounce forgiveness and release from sins that ought not be released yet. 
that's what I'm really concerned about. I, I to me, this is part of the the general. Um, uh, kind of lukewarmness or or self-justifying, you know, I'm okay, you're okay kind of of theology that doesn't take sin serious, seriously when it's just generally offered week after week when we, I mean, come on, honestly, we don't talk as much about holiness of life or transformation of life or, or actually making serious change. And I, that there's lots of ways of doing that that I think are gross and wrong. But I, I'm concerned now, because I take the validity of the absolution so seriously, that by simply recklessly applying it, I'm deliberately saying reckless here to be provocative, that we are actually further hardening sinners in their self-justifying ways and not encouraging them to serious repentance in, in practice. And also, we also make it make it sound like I'm afraid that we make it sound like in practice that repentance is inconsequential on some real level. And that that is the kind of um of abuse of grace that of course God does not let anyone get away with. <laughs> but if we tend to teach God's grace in such a way that it seems to be infinitely usable and manipulable. I know we, we've talked about these kinds of things lots in past episodes. I'm just thinking through this problem specifically in the liturgical practice of general absolution. And I should say for all this, my mind is really not made up. I, I see the argument on both sides. And for once in my life, I don't actually know what is the right thing to do. <laughs> so I, I can be persuaded one way or another, but I want my 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 genuine concern to be heard here. Yeah, and I think the humility of that, recognizing what what conundrums we have in decaying Christendom about these issues is important. Let me just or say, or non Christendom. Let to, me just say again, or non Christendom in my case. Well, and that's and that's the ways in which our contexts are similar. It really is because decaying Christendom means that you can't expect the culture to support anything specifically Christian anymore. And I think that's largely true, especially when it comes to the grievous matter of acknowledging in truth sin and uh, desiring and seeking and finding its remedy um, through repentance and forgiveness. Um, uh, what I would say liturgically, though, is I don't think we sufficiently take to mind the thought that the weekly Eucharistic gathering of the faithful on the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection, is the assembly of the baptized believers, and that the sacraments are there for the baptized believers. That's why, uh, you know, several years ago, I took such grave ex exception uh, to the these ideas of radical hospitality, and this, this idea of that you're going to give any Joe Schmo who walks in off the street a little taste of grace without them recognizing that if they eat this bread and drink this cup, they take upon themselves the cross of Christ. This false advertising is not just a little taste of grace in that, in that trite way that it's talked about. You're taking upon yourself the cross of Christ. Take up your cross and follow me and I will feed you along this path. That's the promise that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again whenever we eat and drink. I don't think that Sunday morning worship is understood that way seriously enough, and that it's in that context that the general confession and absolution are announced. Now, I think we should be developing alternative forms of public worship uh, uh, and I use the word worship with a small w, because I don't mean the Eucharistic worship, but I mean uh, ways of addressing the brokenness and hurt, despair, and 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 so forth of, of our decaying culture. Uh, I've said many times we should have a service of the word for healing to which the public is invited, in which a brief uh, message of gospel and uh, a little bit of instruction and catechism could occur along with the gathering of the prayers of these people for their healing and the prayers with laying on of hands and so forth. That would be the proper way of inviting strangers into the, into the community um, uh, without, uh, without uh, dummying down or otherwise diluting the Eucharistic gathering of the faithful on the Lord's Day.
Yeah, well, I, I definitely um, I agree with that. And I think uh, let, let's anyone thinking about this, do it in the evening. Getting people up on Sunday morning is hard, even when they are baptized believers. <laughs> so <laughs> another, another time is a good idea. But here now, let me say something further that will sort of undermine everything I've just said, which is that if we look at Jesus' ministry, which by definition is to unbaptized people, because people aren't getting baptized before Jesus is raised from the dead, um, forgiveness of sins is part of his ministry. Now, of course, he is Christ and we are not Christ. But if you look at how Jesus gathered people in who would become the church, he did it by healing, like you said, casting out evil spirits, which is a very important evangelistic practice in many parts of the world, and by declaring to people the forgiveness of their sins. So actually, I can see a form of of ministry to the unbaptized, to the not yet believing that invites them toward the forgiveness of sins and maybe even simply grants them unrestrictedly the forgiveness of sins. I would say probably not in a generalized way, um, but in some sort of way, I can see that being the right form of outreach ministry. But I don't think that has been very, I, I have not seen anyone or any liturgy that kind of thinks through what that might be for for the unbaptized, for the people who are new to the faith and coming in. So that might be an interesting uh, avenue to explore further. You know, once, uh, more than once in my ministry, um, uh, I was going to say this whole discussion leads us toward a a discussion of close communion uh, in which, you know, the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Wisconsin Synod too, still maintain in principle— Yeah, Orthodox close communion, uh, which is a way of saying the sacraments are for the faithful, the baptized, the who are, and so forth. Um, and some of what I'm suggesting would mean a shift back in of discipline in that direction, though not with the kind of legalism and ecumenical uh, wooden headedness, wooden headedness of, of some of the churches I just mentioned. Uh, in my own pastoral practice, I've had people who I know are not baptized, or I'm, I'm barely sure that they're believers, but they've begun to come to church, and they do as they see. And then when people get up to come to communion, what do I do? Do I refuse them and humiliate them and embarrass them in that moment? No. What I've said is, uh, Joe, Jane, uh, we need to get you baptized, and I serve you this body of Christ in anticipation of your baptism, something like that. And that doesn't humiliate them, but it also indicates that this is irregular, and that um, um, so and so forth. Something that's uh, that's how I've dealt with this problem. I don't want to go back to close communion or any other kind of um, uh, legalistic policy. I do want to say pastors have. A, a double responsibility to understand what they're doing on Sunday mornings as feeding the faithful, building up the faithful. And there are many avenues in which uh, not yet believers can access that Sunday morning ser- Eucharistic service, but they have to be aware that this is what the reality of what's being done. And that's why the general absolution is valid in that context. But that's, of course, again, a matter of practice and discernment. Right. So I, I think for me, the shift has been is that I once I got here, I became aware really fast that I always have to preach and lead worship on the assumption that there will be uh, by choice still unbaptized people who have nevertheless chosen to come to worship and participate with the faithful and that I have to keep that in mind. So for instance, when I preach about baptism, I remind the baptized of their baptism and exhort those who are not baptized to come to baptism. And in our bulletin, you know, we say at, at communion, uh, you know, baptized believers are welcome to receive Holy Communion. If you are not baptized, please come forward for a blessing. And then after the service, talk to the pastor about baptism. So the invitation to baptism is always there. People know in advance that they can come forward. And I find that unbaptized people 
understand a blessing in a way they don't understand communion. Like, and I think in a sense, almost the blessing means more to them than communion does because blessing is a more generally accessible religious category. Whereas taking upon yourself the crucified and risen flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ is very specific and assumes a level of catechism and commitments that is not intelligible unless you have already been brought to that point. Well said. I totally agree with that. All right. Well, so let's just get back now and close out with um, <laughs> some kind of uh, general absolution practice. So j- just to, to clarify again, in private confession, I have absolutely no problem and have indeed practiced. Someone comes to me and they want to confess their sins and they want to hear with laying on of hands, I forgive you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. No problem with that. Um But for general absolution, because it is valid, because Christ's word is true, how to think through the question of both believers and unbelievers, as well as baptized people who may or may not actually be repentant of their sins, and what is the right pastoral practice in loosing things that should maybe not be loosed, but also loosing things that ought to be loosed. Um, Both situations are there. So I was talking about this to an Australian pastor friend of mine, Fraser Pierce. Hi, Fraser, if you're listening. And um, when we visited there, I noticed that their their public form of, of um, confession and absolution is a little bit different from uh, what we generally do in the U.S. So he uh, directed me towards all of the options in the Lutheran Church of Australia and New Zealand. And so I just want to read one example here and get your thoughts on it. So this is a confession that they use in the communion service. So there is first... Um, Uh, Some exchanges between the pastor and the congregation. The people say a kind of familiar uh, general confession together. And then then it shifts. This is a part that we, we don't have. The pastor says, I ask each of you in the presence of God who searches the heart, do you confess that you have sinned and do you repent of your sins? The congregation replies, I do. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has redeemed you from all your sins and do you desire forgiveness in his name? I do. Do you intend with the help of the Holy Spirit to live as in God's presence and to strive daily to lead a holy life, even as Christ has made you holy? I do. So you notice there is the uh, Trinitarian structure there, but it's also really pressing the question of whether or not you are repentant and whether or not you believe in the forgiveness of sins. Then after the congregation has collectively replied, I do three times, uh, the pastor says, upon your confession... Interesting. I, as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God to you all. On behalf of my Lord Jesus Christ and by his command, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then, God forbid that any of you who reject his grace and forgiveness by refusing to repent and believe, and your sins therefore remain unforgiven. Finally, May he comfort you with his holy absolution and strengthen you with his sacrament that your joy may be full. Peace be with you. And the congregation replies, Amen. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) It, Well, it's very strong. I mean, I, 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 I really respect this because it takes very seriously, in fact, the reality of what's happening and the validity of what's happening and that Christ's word is true. So there is a a pretty serious buildup to the, the, the absolution. It has the ego te absolvo. I forgive you all your sins, of course, in the Trinitarian name. But then the very stern warning, God forbid, that you reject grace and forgiveness by not believing. Um, yeah, so I'm just curious what your, your thoughts are to doing a general absolution like that. Well, I like, I'm serious. I, I, you know, I, I'm reacting very off the top of my head here. But um, I think given this discussion we've had today, this is precisely right. It is akin to Paul saying, uh, whoever eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks to their own condemnation. And I think the theological logic of this, what you've just read, uh, builds upon Paul's thoughts there. Now, the introduction of such a, of a, such a right uh, in our context, I don't know about Japan, but among American Lutherans would take a a certain amount of catechesis, not least of which would be my emphasis on teaching the people that Sunday morning is the Eucharistic gathering of the faithful. It's not, um, you know, a revival service or, or, or entertainment or anything else that gets secularized into. 
Yeah, I like it. I li- I think that the, the it, it fits with Luther's thought that the one th- thing that can block the grace of God is unbelief, the lack of trust, uh, and the unwillingness, therefore, to seriously examine oneself and repent. Hmm. But again, we always have to teach it's not because you unmake God's forgiveness, but that you have prevented it from reaching yourself. But of course, that is the deepest, hardest question of the human condition is, why do we reject God's love and grace? And why do we prefer subjugation to false lords? And um, I'm no. afraid that is that is too deep for, for me to be able to answer in any satisfying way. John 3, the Son of Man came not to condemn, uh, but to save sinners. But men prefer darkness because their deeds yeah. were evil. How can you see the light if you don't actually have eyes to see it with? And how can you hear the word of God if you literally don't have ears, figuratively don't well, have and ears? That, that comes back to my earlier discussion of original sin. Uh, the formula of Concord in its discussion of this says the most dreadful implication of the doctrine of original sin is that one can be living in this state without any awareness of it, without any consciousness of it with a happy conscience, be a happy-go-lucky sinner, you know. And increasingly, it seems to me, that's what a lot of is happening in a lot of our culture. I don't think many people are happy-go-lucky out there. <laughs> just Wait a minute. Just consider one of the chief candidates for the presidency right now. Yeah, I, I don't think he's representative of how people actually feel. I think one of the reason people like him is because they want so badly to have that level of apparent confidence. But all right, let's 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 not go there, for heaven's sake. It's 2024 in January. We got a long way to go yet. <laughs> Oh, that was a good discussion, Sarah. Thank you. Yes. And I will put a link to the, those um, all the various options for confession and absolution from the Lutheran Church of Australia and New Zealand for those who are interested in following up on that. Okay, next time on the show, we will be talking about the atonement. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.